Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. And the Seven Things EMS podcast is talking about resuscitation today. I'm Dan Limmer. I'm here with, very fortunate to be here with Bobby Wales, who's the Director of Education uh, for the American Heart Association. He's been with the Heart Association for 12 years. We've all been jealous of Bobby's international travels, uh, as he did a lot of international work for the Heart Association. Now, as the Director of Education, we're going to talk about resuscitation and uh, even bigger picture, what the uh, standards mean and how they apply to EMS. So welcome, Bobby. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here with you. All right. So I guess I kind of did your your introduction. So let's go to uh, what we call the 30,000 foot view. Before we get into your seven things about resuscitation care, a core uh, you know, issue with the American Heart Association, let's just talk for a second about the guidelines and what they what they mean to the average EMS provider, whether it be EMT, AEMT, or paramedic, there's this collective anticipation every five years or so. Um, and what's it going to mean for my CPR card? What's it going to mean for the National Registry? You know, these changes come out like this. Could you just give us that 30,000 foot view of the protocols? What does the Heart Association intend them to mean? How does it affect our practice and, and certainly testing? I'm just going to throw the big question out there for you, and I know you can handle it. Yeah, I think that's that's the key of it for most providers on the street these days is is how does this impact me? You know, we try to develop the guidelines to represent the best science for the most patients in the world. Uh, so we work with a number of other resuscitation bodies in a group called ILCOR, which is the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. Of course, in healthcare, we love our acronyms. So ILCOR is a a global body that looks at evidence from all over the world and uh, develops some recommendations based off of that. So you might get something from ILCOR that says CPR quality needs to be improved. Then each resuscitation body develops guidelines, which are general recommendations that will say, this is how we think we can improve CPR quality based on the evidence that we currently have available. Then local agencies, medical directors, or your protocol committee will sit down, they'll look at our guidelines, and then they'll say, how can we take those general guidelines and make them specific for the context that we work in? Because if I work in downtown New York City, my protocols are going to be very different than if I'm working in Frontier, Montana. Uh, So we need each of those medical directors and committees to to look specifically at their context and, and figure out a way to make the guidelines practical for them. For testing purposes, there's always going to be a lag. We, we release the guidelines and the National Registry and other groups always look at what those guidelines are specific to out of hospital and then look at how that they can adapt those for their purposes, for the testing purposes. And, you know, then that goes into their system of item writing, which takes some time. Uh, they put a lot of effort into writing good questions that are accurate at measuring the knowledge of the students that are taking the test. So there's always a, a bit of a lag between that, and they start to adapt the new guidelines as soon as they're able to. 
Right. But again, right. that's going to be no, general. I, it's not going to be specific to every EMS posit, uh, agency around the country. Uh, so they have to also look at it from a more general perspective of what is the overall recommendation and uh, how can we accurately measure that. And I think that's one of the things about EMS is that I think we look for things that are, you know, carved in tablets that are, you know, almost, almost, you know, uh, you know, biblical and they're, they're unchangeable. But I think that EMS sometimes looks at these things and doesn't pay as much attention to the word guidelines as they should, because it may apply to different places. And certainly physicians, when they look at these, don't say, I have to do this every time. They say, these are the guidelines that are out and they modify their practice based on that. I think EMS has trouble wrapping their head around the guidelines part when we're very protocol driven without a lot of other choices to have. And I think sometimes that causes a little frustration. Absolutely. There always has to be good clinical judgment used. And uh, I think that that's one of the things where it's a little harder to teach that there's an algorithm that makes sense for 95% of patients but you're going to have some patients who are unique or have a specific background or there's something about their presentation that tells you that that rigid uh, structure is not best for that patient and you need to be able to think outside the box. And that's where clinical experience really comes in, You know, where you can look at a patient and say, this patient doesn't look well, this patient does look well, or there's something different about them than what I would normally treat. And slightly adjust the way that you're you're working with them in order to provide the best outcome for that patient. Yeah, and I think we would would support that in EMS by teaching more pathophysiology and critical thinking and decision making, knowing some more of the why is to be able to give people the toolbox to make those decisions. Absolutely. And I know that there's a few people in EMS specifically that are doing some academic research on critical thinking skills. There's been a good bit in the nursing field, but really in EMS, there's not been specific research done in the field of, of critical thinking. And I think that's going to be a, an important area of research in the next couple of years. Yeah. You know, I'm getting the sense we could do an entire podcast just on this, but we have seven things about resuscitation to do. And I know that that is a core mission of the Heart Association and something that people are ultimately here for. So seven things to know about resuscitation care. We have seven things that you developed I think are outstanding. Let's just go to number one, high quality CPR. It's it's what it's all about. It can't be replaced by anything advanced and providers should use audio feedback devices when they're available. It's about the CPR. It is. It really is. There's so many things that we look at in resuscitation from team dynamics, uh, pharmaceutical interventions, electrical interventions, which are all important, but really high quality CPR has the greatest impact on survival to hospital discharge, which is what we're going for with cardiac arrest treatment. There are five key components of CPR, and hopefully these will not be a surprise to anyone in the audience, but it's always good to refresh those ideas a little bit. So the first is pushing hard, two to two and a half inches, or if you're uh, metrically inclined, five to six centimeters. Pushing fast, 100 to 120 compressions per minute. You can choose the song of choice that you would like to use, whether it's uh, the the grim, another one bites the dust, or staying alive, or uh, the Imperial March from Star Wars. Any of those provide a, a good rhythm to provide compressions to. Third is allow full recoil. So we're not going to lean on the chest in between compressions, come all the way up. 
not necessarily taking the hands off the chest, but so that we're not putting any pressure on the chest in between compressions. We want the heart to have the full opportunity to refill with blood before we compress again. And then don't hyperventilate. Give just enough ventilation to see the chest rise, which is about five to 600 milliliters in an average adult patient. And the reason for that is we don't want to increase the pressure in the chest too much with hyperventilation that will reduce the blood flow back to the heart. Uh, and also, it, the patient just doesn't usually need to be hyperventilated at this point in time. And then the last is, is minimizing delays in chest compressions. So that's the fifth component of high-quality CPR. And the best way to measure delays overall in chest compressions is a, a metric that we use called chest compression fraction, which is you take the amount of time during a cardiac arrest that compressions are actually being done, and then you look at how much of that uh, represents, you divide that into the overall time for the whole resuscitation and look at how much time in that resuscitation were you actually doing compressions on the patient. And there's a lot of data on this um, that ideally you want to be around 80 or 90% if you have a very well-practiced team, but at a minimum, you should be doing at least 60%. And a move from 50% to 80%, there's been some research that has suggested that that's associated with a tripling of the survival rate of the, of the patient. Um, so there's a lot of research and a lot of reasons why we think that chest compression fraction is important and that that's a very, a very good measurement of the potential for survival. Uh, I've worked with some EMS systems that have monthly practicing with their providers they, uh, they have all of the different agencies who will respond to a call, train together, and they have a set standard that the minimum chest compression fraction for EMS in our region is going to be 90%. Uh, and so you really see the results of that being that they have much higher rates of survival from cardiac arrest than other places that don't practice like that. We'll talk a little bit more about how we practice and how we train later on. That's one of my other seven things. Um, yeah. Then, then finally with this one, I think the audio visual feedback that you mentioned, that it's, it's reasonable to use audio visual feedback devices to provide feedback on the quality of CPR so that as providers are actually performing the skill, they are making sure that they're giving the correct um, compression technique and there's been trials that have reported up to a 25% increase in survival to discharge and in-hospital cardiac arrest when providers used audio feedback devices that provide uh, depth recoil and uh, rate feedback. You can use some other physiological measurements like end tidal CO2 or blood pressure, but they're not quite as um, instant feedback as using an actual feedback device that, that tells you how you're doing on the chest compressions. We have come so far in CPR just listening to this. And I'm going to throw in just a couple things before we go on, but just, you know, how you talk about the way that we can increase survival, um, how we've evolved CPR so much. And I think if people were to be able to look at a video of their code afterwards, they would be amazed at how much time is spent off the chest that just goes uh, unnoticed, or it seems like that had been the way things are done. It takes a conscious effort to really be able to maintain that compression fraction and to practice that, you say. Um, I'll also add that we've acknowledged how tiring 
pushing hard and pushing fast, doing it right can be, and the importance of switching rescuers to make sure that we maintain that. And the last thing I'll say is we should study the personalities of the EMS providers by the songs they choose to maintain their CPR rate. <laughs> I think that would tell us a lot about people. I think so. I think that would be perhaps insightful, perhaps frightening. I'm not sure. Um, well, we can move on to number two then, and we can, <laughs> we can just more, leave it, leave it at that. That you, that you brought up that was interesting, though, is um, the ability to debrief effectively on how we did during a cardiac arrest and looking at the quality of compressions. There have been a few uh, studies done in the U.S. with EMS systems where they measured the quality of CPR and then interviewed the providers afterwards. And this is actual clinical scenarios, not in the classroom. And when they would ask the providers, how did you do? What was your chest compression fraction? What do you think was the longest gap uh, in between compressions that you paused? And all of the providers would say, well, we were delivering compressions at 100 compressions per minute and there were no no gaps over 10 seconds. But then when they looked at the data of the actual code, they would see very long gaps. And in some minutes, maybe 60 compressions were delivered, or they would get distracted by other things, maybe spending too much time delivering ventilations or one thing or another. Uh, but overwhelmingly, their perception of how they performed was very different from their actual performance. Uh, so they were able to go back do some further training, refresh, practice, and come back and they resume the study with much better results. But it really took some humility on the part of the providers to say, hey, maybe we're not doing this as well as we thought and we can get better at it. Uh, even as experienced EMS clinicians who have run hundreds of resuscitations and that, that made a significant difference in their performance. Wow. Wow. Number two, I'm going to go on because I think that we, we can continue here. We talk about stopping CPR and what we do. Number two is that early defibrillation is critical to survival from VFib and pulseless VTAC cardiac arrest. Absolutely. I think that's, other than CPR, uh, that's the other most important factor in survival. Um, and we do see strong evidence that says that defibrillation is most successful when it's administered early after the onset of, of pulseless VTAC or VFib. Um, there's some evidence that biphasic defibrillators have greater success in terminating arrhythmias. Um, and then there's various devices that have different forms of shock waves that they deliver, but there's not really any any evidence that one is, is better than the other as far as the, the form of the shock wave. Um, for people like you and I who've been around for a little while, um, you know, now we're recommending only to provide a single shock and then immediately resume CPR. Uh, we're not doing the stack shocks that we did back in the day, the shock, 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 epi shock. Uh, I, could, I could probably recite that in my sleep still after my yes. uh, oh, yeah. initial paramedic training. Um, and we used to give a lot of recommendations around energy doses, but each manufacturer has kind of gone in different directions in the way that they deliver the energy. A lot of them will measure the impedance of the chest. So that basically just means how much tissue there is blocking that electrical conduction. So a very thin person, the monitor may measure that and say they don't need as high of a dose or a very large person uh, may need a higher dose. So we'll just say now that you should follow the manufacturer's recommendations for whatever device that you use. Uh, but ideally, what you want to do is provide compressions while the defibrillator is being applied, while it's being charged, and then 
Obviously, we clear for the shock. Immediately after the shock is delivered, resume CPR. We don't need to stop and look for a rhythm. Another thing that we did back in the day, um, we just go right back to CPR and um, perform high-quality CPR for two minutes until it's time to reanalyze and defibrillate again, potentially. And then for the BLS provider, it would be the same thing for a pulse check. You're getting right back on the chest doing compressions. There's no pulse checks. That Really, we're looking for... Um, we're looking to do great CPR, minimal uh, stops. But if the patient starts to show signs of life, that's when we would go for the pulse check. Absolutely, yes. The only uh, change I think I would make with with uh, basic EMS providers is if you're using an AED, most AEDs now have been updated to where they will allow you to resume compressions after it has analyzed and while it is charging, so that you are not off the chest for too long. If you've if you've played with AEDs, you know that once it starts to analyze, it's going to take eight seconds or so to analyze, and then it's going to take another five to six seconds to charge, and then you can shock. So by the time you get off the chest, analyze, shock, uh, and get back on the chest, you could have a 20-second delay easily. Um, so our recommendation is that you should resume compressions after it has analyzed while it is charging, and then stop again to deliver the shock, and then resume again immediately so that you're not off the chest too long. Uh, but some, some AEDs will continue to analyze throughout the shock or the charging period leading up to the shock, and doing compressions can interfere with its, its ability. So I would just say if you are a basic EMS provider and you use AEDs, you should know what the AED that you're using um, how it's set up and programmed, and whether or not you can do that before you get into a cardiac arrest situation. I know I'm talking to an expert when they say it takes about eight seconds to analyze, not ten, not five, <laughs> eight. I think that's that's very impressive. I was going to share that. Let me just, let me just look at number one and two together here, and and fire a question out because I know I hear a lot of things from people about, well, do I do some CPR before I defibrillate in an unwitnessed arrest? You know, what happens, you know, in that kind of situation? And I know that you said there are some, um, you know, there's a certain amount of clinical practice with unknown downtime. You can certainly start compressions while you're applying the AED if you have multiple people, but EMS people like what ifs. Does the Heart Association have a stand on the defibrillation compression and how that goes with the new guidelines? Yeah, you know, we really like to make our recommendations based on research that we have on hand and not really any research that has looked at, is there a difference in those initial seconds of whether to do compressions first or defibrillation first? What the research does say is that the earlier you can defibrillate, the better. However, in the EMS setting, it's very rare that your patient goes into cardiac arrest when you already have the pads on them and you're ready to go. So in most cases, you're going to have a period of CPR while you're applying the monitor anyway. So it kind of makes the question a little bit less relevant. But in the circumstance, which I have had happen in the clinical setting, in my experience, where you have a patient who you can tell is um, in a peri-arrest condition and you have proactively attached the pads and you see them go into VF. Uh, in one patient I had, I was running a 12 lead when they changed to VF. Um, there's no reason to delay shocking to start performing CPR. In a situation like that, you know their heart has been perfusing, even if not perfusing well. Um, so the idea that we would need to prep the heart with 
a few minutes of CPR before defibrillating is not correct. And I would say in all circumstances, it would be reasonable to start with a shock as soon as you can effectively deliver it. But if you can't deliver it instantly, then I would immediately begin compressions while we set up to deliver that shock. And I think people have to really make the decision based on what they've got there, the equipment they have there, the people they have there. Not wasn't looking to put you on a spot, but it's a question I know that comes up, and I think that answered it, uh, you know, really uh, nicely. So we've moved from CPR to defibrillation, and now we're getting into epinephrine. And there had been some discussion. People were all, you know, I'm amazed the guidelines can stay as under wraps as they do. With as many people as there are involved, I've never had a leak. And you know, once you get into the summer of uh, a year, there's going to be releases. People start, you know, giving their predictions on what the heart association is going to say in these guidelines. And there was some talk about epinephrine uh, this time, but it's still in and it's still recommended. Yes, the reason there was a lot of talk is because the the guidelines released in October of 2020 were obviously heavily influenced by the research that occurred from 2016 to 2019. And uh, the, the famous paramedic two trial in the UK in 2018 uh, was a randomized controlled trial. It looked at the effectiveness of epinephrine in cardiac arrest uh, versus a saline placebo, very well constructed research and um, very well executed, uh, great data set. I think they had 8,000 patients that were enrolled almost 50, 50, as you would expect uh, between the two groups. And uh, there was another one back in Australia in 2011 that was done as well, a randomized controlled trial of epinephrine in the out-of-hospital setting. So a, a cursory glance at the research would make someone think that epinephrine increases the chance of ROSC but not survival to discharge, which is the metric we really care about. Uh, and so maybe there's not a benefit to using epinephrine. But when you really dive into the research and, and when you listen to the interpretation of the people who actually did that study, you'll find that there's a couple things that, that change that. So first of all, the median time of arrest to administration of epinephrine in, uh, in both of those studies was 21 minutes due to response times in those systems. Um, so we've looked at other studies that have shown that epinephrine is more beneficial early in the arrest as opposed to late in the rest. So it's possible that, that it's beneficial to use ben epinephrine early in the arrest, but late in the arrest, if you get ROSC, it's already going to be too late for, um, you know, for the brain tissue anyway. Um, so there is a number of theories that say early in the arrest is, is good. And then there's other theories that say that it's possible that there are some patients that epinephrine is actually beneficial for and other patients that it's not, but through the research that's been done to date, we haven't been able to tease out those differences. Uh, so at the, in the end of the day, it's probably better to continue to give epinephrine for those that it could help as opposed to um, withholding it because it may not be effective in some patients. And then there's also been research around the, oh, sorry. There's also been research around the dosage. Uh, you know, back in the day we would use higher doses or um, potentially other vasopressors there's some evidence that vasopressin is equivalent to epinephrine, but not necessarily better. And there is no evidence that high dose epinephrine is more effective or equally effective as, as just a standard one milligram dose. 
I was just going to say that I hope people are not only listening to the words that you say, but between the lines, I hope that they feel the amount of thought that goes in there and also how well you present this because I don't think people, uh, when they go through the guidelines, um, always read the the preambles and the things that go into them and look at the research that's at the end of every section. And I think your presentation of it not only explains why, but it shows the depth and the how it's done. And to me, I hope that people listening to this say, yeah, they're really, this is not just, you know, uh, not that anybody would say, but not paper, rock, scissors. There is so much thought that goes into this. And I think your explanations are really outstanding. So so with that, let's go to number four, another issue that people uh, do. We have the the drug naloxone that would like to give an opioid overdoses. But when we find a code um, and we believe it's an opioid overdose, that the standard resuscitative efforts that we do are still the best route for cardiac arrest when we think there's an opioid involved. Yes. And I think this is a hot topic because of the, the number of opioid overdoses in the U.S. right now. People want to know whether they should give naloxone to patients in cardiac arrest. And there's really not a proven benefit to administering it in this situation. Um, we know the mechanism by which naloxone, or I'm sorry, opioids kill people. And that is that it suppresses the respiratory drive, eventually causes hypoxia, and then that progresses to death. Um, so when we begin our resuscitative efforts, we are going to provide compressions and we're going to provide breaths. And that is going to resolve, if it's done correctly, will resolve the hypoxia itself. Um, and so there's not any, any benefit to introducing naloxone and reversing that effect because we're already fixing the lethal problem with the overdose that's caused the cardiac arrest. So if you have a patient who has a suspected opioid overdose or a confirmed overdose, and they're in cardiac arrest, you would just follow the normal cardiac arrest algorithm, high quality CPR, early defibrillation, effective ventilation, but not hyperventilation. And uh, that will be the best path forward for that patient. Obviously in the peri-arrest situation, or if you have a patient who is nearing arrest, you're still going to place the focus on airway management as a professional EMS provider. Uh, and then a secondary option is to use naloxone, uh, but uh, always, always make sure that you're managing the airway, breathing, and circulation first. We love our shiny things. We love our wonder drugs. Uh, we tend to lean on those, but the message is that we can't forget um, we can't forget the importance of that ventilation and the CPR, and that you're right, that does correct the issue that the opioid itself has caused. Yes. All right, number five. Now, assuming that we uh, use all of the things we've learned here so far, uh, we get a return of spontaneous circulation. Uh, Post-resuscitation care um, is, well, we're having more opportunity to use it uh, as we do this better and better. And the, the guidance and the things that we need to do to keep the patient's path going forward positively is pretty important. And there's a couple of points that you have in this, uh, in this element. Yeah. So there's been a really interesting number of developments in the last decade or so about what to do when you do get a, a patient who has resuscitated successfully. And we've talked a lot about um, cooling the patients, uh, which we now call targeted temperature management. 
There's been a lot of research around that. Uh, most of the research seems to suggest that the uh, cooling in the pre-hospital setting is not beneficial. And there's a lot of unanswered questions about how it works and what the ideal temperature is, what the ideal pace of cooling and then rewarming. Um, but the best evidence says that hospitals that have a, a comprehensive system of care, they have very clear protocols, they consistently follow it, and uh, they accurately train and prepare their providers to perform that system of treatments has the best outcomes for post-ROSC patients. So there's still a lot of answers that need to be uh, developed and teased out from the science and more research is being done now to figure out exactly how it works, why it works, and how we can make targeted temperature management ideal for patients. But the best evidence right now just says, make sure that your, your system has a comprehensive plan. Uh, then we have 12 lead ECGs. That's an important thing to consider as soon as possible after ROSC while you're stabilizing, uh, as soon as you have the ability to obtain a 12 lead ECG. Many times cardiac arrest is associated with a STEMI. So the earlier that we can identify that post-ROSC, the faster they can get to definitive treatment to avoid long-term injury, to avoid re-arrest, and uh, to optimize the outcome for the patient. And then finally, blood pressure management. We want to avoid hypotension, but we don't want to uh, go overboard with that. We want to find a nice balance. So we're going to look at a blood pressure systolic BP of at least 90 um, and a mean arterial pressure of at least 65 in the post-ROS patient. That's going to be our, our target for um, their perfusion status. And those, those things all fit together into a nice package for how we can care for post-resuscitation patients. It's uh, it's much more than the high five when we find the pulse that I, I hear you saying that EMS and managing these things, even if we're not uh, directing a temperature and cooling, even, uh, you know, preventing extremes in temperature, um, being able to do that 12 lead to, to keep the system going. Uh, all too often, we don't realize what an important part of the overall system that EMS is and that 12 lead showing a STEMI, um, not just bringing in the patient who's been resuscitated, you can really keep a forward path going. Um, and the importance of the blood pressure management, we can do that too. And we can, we can do that well um, when we have a, a ROSC patient. Absolutely. All right. So we are in uh, coming down to number six and seven, and we've gone from kind of the BLS, we've done some uh, ALS and you know what to do for ROSC. I think these were really put together, well put together, Bobby. So now we're coming back into more uh, system-wide things, more process things. And I, I do think something you said earlier um, about people who train uh, with CPR and people who train doing codes and uh, in, increasing uh, their uh, compression fraction um, is is something that's that's really important. We just kind of figured we were the the code people and we're racing the reaper. Went out and did CPR for years, but now we're really finding that these details are the things. These these what we might have years ago thought of as small details are actually the things that are bumping up survival rates pretty significantly from what you said. So that takes us to number six, which more frequent and more deliberate training is ideal for quality improvement. Yes. And we've realized how important education is 
And in the last few guideline cycles, we've included a full chapter on recommendations for education and how we train our providers because we want them to be able to recall that information under pressure and perform the skills correctly. Um, so in the 2020 guidelines, it says that incorporating deliberate practice and mastery learning into courses um, should be considered for improving skill acquisition and performance. So what does that mean? Deliberate practice is learners are given a, a goal to achieve, immediate feedback on their performance, both in the form of uh, a feedback device and instructor feedback, and ample time for repetition to improve their performance. And then mastery learning is the use of deliberate practice along with testing to define a specific standard that implies mastery of the task being learned. So we're not just looking for, can you perform this skill in this moment, in this classroom, in this sterile environment, but have you mastered this skill enough that when you go out and you are in a bathroom, in a single wide trailer, 45 minutes from the hospital, can you perform this skill effectively to provide uh, the best possible care to patients? Building on that, we've also looked into spaced learning, which is separating a, a mass of learning into smaller chunks. So for example, in our context, a, a full 16-hour ACLS course separated into two or four-hour chunks offered over time, drawing out that educational process. The student has the content on their mind for a longer period of time, and they're more likely to retain that information. I know back in, in college, uh, you know, when I was younger and had uh, the, the best learning potential in my brain, um, I took a lot of full semester courses, and I took a couple block classes that were one or two weeks long. And for sure, anecdotally in my case, the classes that I worked on over the full semester, even if I had the same number of hours as the block classes, I retained a lot more information for a longer period of time because I was constantly being exposed to that over a four-month period. Whereas a block class, it's kind of thrown at you all at once and you have limited ability to absorb that information. So then when you fast forward in time and you think, now I'm, I'm in the field, I'm treating this patient, have I had enough exposure to it? We really like the idea of space learning where they are um, moving this training out over longer periods of time, shorter chunks, so that they can uh, receive better training to provide the skill over time. Um, and then similarly, booster training is small chunks of training that's a review of content already learned. Um, one example of this is the RQI program that we've developed, Resuscitation Quality Improvement where providers have to take an online cognitive course each year, uh, but then perform psychomotor skills each quarter to maintain that higher level of mastery so that anytime they are uh, called upon to use those skills, they have practiced it recently. Uh, so random aside story, back in the day, I did an internship with the, uh, with the sheriff's office in South Carolina. And uh, one of the one of the things that I got to do was to go to the SWAT training day that they had that month. And as I was talking to the snipers, because of course, who wouldn't want to take some time to go talk to the snipers? Keep, um, them, keep, keep them on your good side. Are you absolutely. on their good side? Um, they, they happen to mention that they have a uniqueness to their training where they all will line up, they take one shot, and then they go debrief that shot. And then they go fire 300 rounds and practice. And they debrief that first shot because they say that's, 
you know, that's the important one. When you get called out on a SWAT call, that shot is important. You don't get to go take a couple practice shots and then take the shot that counts. And uh, I've recalled that more recently as we've looked at this idea of booster training in EMS and particularly in resuscitation that, you know, when someone goes into cardiac arrest, whether you're in the hospital and it's someone in a bed or whether you are walking through the mall, if people even walk through malls anymore, or whether you're responding to a call and someone's in cardiac arrest, you don't have a chance to go refresh, to practice your skills, to dial in your compressions. That mastery has to be there. And uh, that's what booster training does for people is it keeps that fresh on their mind, it keeps the skill, that psychomotor skill, muscle memory fresh, and enables them to go in and immediately perform at a higher level than before. Well, let's put this out then as a charge to the providers that are listening to this to, uh, during their shifts, even if it's not formal training, to uh, do some of this booster training. And if there's educators here, if there are squad trainers, uh, there are people who have say in organizations, uh, let's take this as a charge to to make this happen as an important part of our uh, quality improvement in CPR. Absolutely. There is no reason that the average provider can't take some of their own uh, training and development into their own hands. I recall a specific time back when I was um, working in South Carolina as a training officer, we were talking about uh, water emergencies and the discussion in the room. So these were all experienced providers. It was our in-service training was that no one had actually ever put anyone on a backboard in the water, but they had talked about it a lot. Uh, so we decided after training that day, a whole group of us grabbed some backboards and drove to the lake and got in the water and put each other on backboards. And we found it was a little bit easier than what we thought, but uh, it was still very helpful for us to say, we have actually done this now. We know what it looks like. We took this into our own hands. It was not part of a curriculum. There was no requirement for our um, renewal that we had ever had to put someone on a backboard in the water, uh, but we took that upon ourselves to make sure that we were prepared if that uh, ever arose. So I would say if you're a provider out there and you feel like, hey, you know, I only get a CPR class every two years. I want to be better at this. Absolutely. You can talk to your training officer, get your hands on a mannequin, uh, get a CPR anytime kit that allows you to just have it at the house and practice whenever, whenever you can. All right. So that'll take us into systems. The number seven. Systems improvement is the future of increasing survival from cardiac arrests. A lot of the numbers you see from certain cities or areas uh, certainly involve uh, entire systems. And I think it's probably also worth noting that the system uh, extends uh, beyond EMS in either direction from the bystanders through to the hospital care that we are um Kind of sandwiched in the in the system, but we have a responsibility to to interact with both of those to make that better. And I think the especially the community, we have the ability to do some outreach there and make a difference. Absolutely, and it, it's this area that I think is a little less concrete and a little harder for people to understand exactly what the steps are because they're different for every system for every community. Um, the best way to look at it is is a, uh, a formula, and I know in EMS we typically don't like math, but the Uchtstein formula for survival is a really useful tool in understanding how to improve survival. And so it's medical science, which is what we do, 
uh, times educational efficiency, which is how we teach it, times systems of care, which is how we get it done in the real world. And that equals survival. So if any of those things are non-existent, you know, if you multiply times zero, your end result is zero, no matter what the other numbers are. So if we don't have good science, then we're not going to have good outcomes. If we don't have good educational efficiency, we're not translating that science into the minds of the providers. And if we don't have good systems of care, it's not getting done. So what do we mean when we say systems of care, local implementation? So how are bystanders trained and activated to perform CPR? Where do we place AEDs, public access defibrillation, and how do we track where the nearest one is so that it can be used in an emergency? Uh, how do EMS systems and hospitals work together to determine the best destination for the patient? How do we train dispatchers to identify cardiac arrest, coach bystanders uh, to do CPR until the ambulance gets there? Um, this includes educating doctors and family physicians to identify early warning signs of cardiovascular disease and risk factors for cardiac arrest. Um, it includes data registries, post-incident debriefing. Um, I think that every time new guidelines come out, providers hope that there's a, a magic compression to ventilation ratio that's going to increase survival or a perfect drug that's going to solve the problem. But as we look at the evidence for how we're going to continue to improve systems of care in our communities, um, this whole implementation piece is really what's going to continue to make a difference in survival. Um, and back to what we talked about before, this is why protocols for specific agencies may deviate from the AHA's guidelines or be more specific, or there could be differences. It, the guidelines are focusing on identifying the best treatment for the most people, uh, but the way that you build a system of care is different. If you're in an urban center versus a rural center or a frontier setting, if you're picking up a patient two miles from a cardiac center, your plan of action is going to be different than if you're in a remote wilderness or on an oil rig or in a, a rural setting somewhere in America. So every medical director protocol committee, they have to look at the context, the community in which they serve and figure out the best protocols for their providers. Um, you know, we've, we separate in hospital guidelines from out of hospital guidelines when there's evidence to support a difference, uh, but it's difficult for us to get more granular than that. We can't tell you what to do in Bozeman versus Boston. Uh, that's really that really has to be up to the local people to figure out. And they're the ones that are going to activate community training. They're the ones that are going to solve the public access defibrillation um, uh, accessibility challenges in their region. We can provide some general support and some general ideas for how to do that. And uh, but really, it comes down to are you willing to put in the work? to get the stakeholders together and solve those problems for your community to increase survival. It really seems like it's, uh, especially the action-oriented EMS community, that we'd want to focus on ourselves and say that, uh, you know, that what can we do within ourselves? But the truth is, is that early high-quality CPR and early defibrillation, if that is, in fact, the key as we started with, Part of what we have to do is we have to share that knowledge and share that ability uh, because that, that is out there. And sometimes saving people comes from the efforts that we do in the CPR and AED class two months ago, not from when we jump on the truck. And I think 
as EMS matures, uh, more and more gets into things, we realize that we have more of a role in the community uh, before, uh, certainly during, and even after the emergency when these things happen where EMS fits in this system. That's exactly right. And you hit on something that speaks very clearly to my motivation for what I do. When I worked as a paramedic on the street, I could change the life of one patient that I was dealing with at that time. And then, as you know, when you become an EMS educator, you're training the next generation of providers and you have the ability to have an impact on hundreds of patients at a time because you've trained hundreds of providers at a time. Uh, And then now I feel like for myself, I have this opportunity where I'm influencing the education of 30 million people a year around the world uh, in how to perform resuscitation. And uh, each of those people may have the opportunity to use those skills at any given time. Uh, So therefore, instead of just one patient at a time, I'm able to influence a lot. And I think each provider has that opportunity to look at how can I improve the care that I'm giving, but also how can I improve the care that patients in the future will be getting from other people in my community and how can I improve the survival that they're going to have and the outcomes that they're going to have. If we'd even look at this and say, what would I want for myself, for my family, we would want a robust system from start to finish. And I think that's uh, what you've discussed here. Now, I have to say, Bobby, um, the Heart Association made a great decision uh, putting you where you are because you are a very intelligent and passionate speaker about these things. And I'm really thrilled to have been able to have this conversation. What I generally do at the end of these sessions is give people an opportunity for a parting shot. If there is something that you would say to the people listening, you know, we have primacy and recency. People remember the kind of the beginning and the end. And the end. Um, how would you wrap this up? What's your what's your parting shot um, as the uh, director of education for the Heart Association? I would say to make sure that you, as an individual, are um, trying to be the best provider that you can be, and maximizing your training opportunities taking control over your training and making sure that you are always evolving, always trying to know more about physiology, know more about how to provide skills and and how to provide treatments, and then to take that to the next level and find a way to share it with the people around you, your other providers within your system, the community around you. How can you uh, educate them and train them and prepare them? That, I think, is what is going to really increase the professionalism and the uh, appearance of EMS in our communities, but it's also going to make a big difference in the survival of, uh, of patients in those communities as well. Beautifully said. Um, that's the thing. I put everybody on the spot and everybody comes through with really uh, great things at the end. I think that that, that uh was some great uh, sage advice uh, and also a little bit of a call to action. And I think that it's going to make a difference. I'm really thrilled to have spent um, this 45 minutes with you. Our goal is to give, you know, bite-sized pieces of information, uh, good solid information, a way they can understand uh, without a lot of fluff. And I really believe people listening to this will not only have learned about resuscitation, but like I said before, the between the lines things that you said I think we're really impressive that people now know that there's more depth to what's being done, uh, the research that goes behind it, and the work that the Heart Association is is doing uh, to be able to get that material out there. And I just want to thank you. 
Great. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.